Romans chapter 9 is really a combination where you have to study 9, 10, and 11. And it's looking at Israel's past, Israel presently, and Israel's future. And so if you would, we're just going to sort of get the some of the pieces of the puzzle out on the table today and begin to put some borders together. But if all you hear is chapter 9, you're not hearing the entirety of the message. And so it's going to be over a three-week period to get the whole part. Now remember the end of chapter 8 was just a, a radical passage where it says that we are more than conquerors through God's love for us. Neither height, nor depth, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come can separate us from the love of God. And God just declaring his love towards us that will never change and never stop. We're more than conquerors because of his love for us. Now, if you were a Gentile believer who had been studying the Bible, or a Jewish believer who knew the Bible you would say that sounds similar to what God said a few thousand years earlier to Israel. God said to Israel, I didn't choose you because you were a great people. I didn't choose you because you were a numerous people. I chose you because I set my love upon you. And then God declares, I will always be your God. You will always be my people forever. He makes a very clear statement on that over and over again. But at the present time that Paul was writing as it is today, the majority of the Jews have rejected their Messiah. The majority of Christians were Gentiles. And so the question would arise, does God still feel the same way towards Israel since there's so few of them that are believers, and since they have rejected the Messiah, does that negate what God thought or felt or promised to Israel? Now, the reason this is so important is because God's nature is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if you would, Israel's sort of a prototype of how us Gentiles would also be treated by God. So if, if God has a certain way of dealing with the Israel as a nation throughout thousands of years, we should be able to look at that and say, as God's nature was in dealing with Israel, so God's nature is the same dealing with us. And indeed it is. But before we can just make a big, broad brush of the the stroke, we need to step back and look through the mind of God at at many particulars. And this is what Romans chapter 9 does. It says, let's let's start taking a look at this, and then it's going to expound it in chapter 10, and then it's going to bring a final conclusion to help us understand God's nature towards his chosen child, Abraham, and all of his descendants. So in Romans chapter 9, Paul, although he had a ministry to the Gentiles, it didn't mean in any way he didn't want to see the evangelism of his fellow brethren, the Jews. And so in chapter 9, he says, I tell the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Listen to verse 2 here. That I have great sorrow And continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed. Notice that word. It's the Greek word anathema. Damned to the lowest parts of hell. To the strictest judgment of God. I could wish that I myself would be accursed from Christ. For my brethren. My countrymen. According to the flesh. If I could make a deal with God. I can't. I know this is foolish talk. But if I could trade myself and take their place in hell that they might go to heaven, I would take the deal. That's how great of, as he says, their sorrow of heart and continual grief. Boy, you know, I, I hope all of us at some point in our pilgrimage as Christians would come to that kind of love for our fellow man. 
we hear in Paul's voice here that there isn't four or five different options when a person dies. There's two options. Either you're in heaven with the Lord or you're anathema. You're judged to hell. I know the doctrine of Satan and the the spirit of this world is saying, I'm okay, you're okay. Live and let live. All roads lead to God. It's like the wheel with all the spokes going to the hub. And in the hub, you know, whether it's Hindu or Muslim or Hare Krishna or Jehovah's Witnesses or Christians, whatever, we're all going to eventually come to the hub, God. And so it really doesn't matter as long as you're sincere about what you believe and I need to respect what you believe. And, you know, all of us believe whatever we want to believe. It doesn't really matter. We're all going to eventually get to the hub, God. And all these kind of crazy doctrines... You won't find that in the Bible. Jesus made it very clear that no one is going to make it to heaven. No one's going to be received by the Father except through the Son. There is one door, and that door is Jesus. There's no other name under heaven in which men may be saved except through Jesus Christ. And hopefully that deep, Sorrow of thought of anybody not going to heaven would provoke us to love and good works. Especially the love of praying for the lost. Especially stepping out of our comfort zone. Crossing lines that we're not supposed to cross. That is entering their private space, their private world. And telling them their need to receive Christ. Their need to submit their will to Christ. To become a born again believer that they might have their name written in the book of life, that their sins might be forgiven, that they might go to heaven. There is no other way. And Paul realizes if they don't have Christ, they're not going to have heaven. And it grieved him greatly, the thought that they would not have heaven. And in verse 4, he said, Who are Israelites to whom pertain, number one, the adoption. In the New Testament, we're adopted in the household of God. We just looked at that in chapter 8. But the first people adopted by God into his family was Abraham and his descendants, Isaac and Jacob and on down. And so the original people adopted in the household of God were the Jews. And it says they pertain the adoption and also the glory. How many glorious ways God revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and, and Moses and many others. The covenants were given to them. The giving of the law. The service of God. The promises of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. And everybody said, Amen. Boy, I love that last sentence of, of verse 5. Christ, who is over all the eternally blessed God. It, it just seems like we need to get the worship team back up here and worship for a little bit. I, I just, oh, when I read that, my, my heart just melts within me, just thinking of that. How, how it pleases the Father. Can you just sense the joy of the Father? It says that every knee would can bow, that every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And here is the Holy Spirit is helping Paul pin this passage that Christ, our Lord Jesus, he's over all. Colossians says, in him all things consist. The eternally blessed God. I love those Rome, I love that Revelation 4 and 5 where we see all the angels and all the host of heaven, us, all the saints, bowing down and singing to the Lamb who had been slain. Glory and honor and power and blessings be to your name forever and ever and evermore who was and is and is to come. Just, it's just radical to, to see that that day is coming and very, very soon. But here we see that the greatest of all blessings that could be attributed to the Jewish nation is they have given us the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. Yes, they receive glory. Yes, they receive adoption. Yes, they receive covenants. They, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises. But the greatest gift that the Jews received was Jesus. It says in Genesis 12, Abraham, God said to Abraham, I will bless you, Abraham, and in you all the nations of the world will be blessed. And we see that today through Jesus. Salvation has come. Well, in verse 6, 
But it is not the word of God has taken no effect. For they are not all Israel who are Israel. So the question now arises, Paul is, is, if you would, being defensive and he realizes there's some real critical questions being asked. And so the critical question is, you, you said to Abraham, I'll be your God and all your descendants I'll be their God. But now we're looking at all your descendants and most of them not following God. To this day, Israel. You know what Israel means? Remember that was, his, Jacob's original name was Jacob. And after he wrestled with God, God changed his name from Jacob to Israel, which means governed by God. And in here today, we see the nation of Israel, <laughs> the highest population of atheists of any people group on the earth. Because <laughs> they basically have said that God didn't stop the Holocaust, so if there is a God, I hate him. <laughs> and I just assume not to hate him, I just don't believe he exists. That's their, their logic. And I've had many Jews tell me, you know, I, I wish God would choose somebody else for a while. Quit choosing us because it's torment and pain and suffering, destruction. Being chosen by God, if that's the case, is nothing but a curse. I've been told that numerous times. And so, in essence, he's saying, if God is the God of Israel, well, he's not. So is God weak? Is God not powerful enough? Did God not calculate things out well enough? Because they're not following him. He is not their God. They've rejected the Messiah. And then notice the second part of verse 6. He says, for they are not all Israel... Who are Israel? It's a play on the words. Not everybody who is nationally a Jew is governed by God. And this is the point he's making here. For they are not all Israel. They're not all governed by God. Those who are being governed by God receive the Messiah. But not just everybody according to nationality are governed by God. And not only that, but look in verse 7. Nor are they all, what? Children. This is an important point. Not everybody who has Abraham's blood flowing through their vein are children of God as Abraham was. And so in verse 7, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But what does the scripture teach us? In Isaac your seed shall be called. That's found in Genesis 17, verse 18 and 19, where God had said through Sarah, your descendants shall be. And Abraham said, Lord, no, let Ishmael live before you. Now you guys remember that story? Where Sarah said, it looks like I'm not going to have kids, 60, 70, 80. She was 90 before she finally had Isaac. She was up there in age and she said, take my maidservant Hagar. It's interesting. Archaeologically, we've discovered in the Ur of the Chaldees, Iraq, Nazaria, Iraq area, we have found a writing that explained this. That in the Ur of the Chaldees, if a wife could not bear children, she could take her handmaiden, the handmaiden would have a child, and the child would be the wives. And so Sarah said, I will have a child, but it will be through my handmaid. Interesting enough, it goes on to explain that the handmaid can never be seen as an employee again, but a permanent fixture in the family. And so later, when Sarah is wanting to get rid of Hagar, Abraham said, no, 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 that can't be done. Now we're breaking the very rules. Of course, none of these were the rules of God. This was of their, their past culture that God had told them to leave. But nevertheless, he said, let Ishmael live before you, Lord. And God said, no. <laughs> but I will also make Ishmael a great nation. So let's understand here that as we're talking about these points, it's not that God was cursing Ishmael. It had nothing to do with Ishmael. Quite the opposite, as we go on and look futuristically in prophecy, the end of Isaiah 19 tells us that at the beginning of the millennial reign of Christ, that Assyria, Egypt, and Israel, the three people groups combined, 
make the inheritance of God the children of God. And so again here, he's simply talking about God's choosing and election as we're going to discover. But no, it's not going to just be anybody. Ishmael was from the loins of Abraham, but it was through the son of promise, Isaac, that God chose. Notice in verse 8, that is those of the children of the flesh, referring to Ishmael, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise, that's Isaac, are counted as a seed. For this is the word of promise, quoting Genesis 18, verse 10 and verse 14. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Which she was almost 90 years old. So it was, it was clearly a miraculous work of God. And so um, we just need to stop and understand that not everybody who is of the nationality of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Matter of fact, as we go on, we're going to find that the children of Abraham are those who have the faith of Abraham. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. And uh, remember when the, the, the Jews came out to John the Baptist and not all of them were willing to be baptized by him? And they came out and, and, and John says, why are you coming out here? He knew they weren't repentive. And they started to speak and he said, be quiet. Don't say because you're children of Abraham. God can raise up from these stones children of Abraham. It means nothing. He made it very abundantly clear that that would not be a calling card before God they could use. That they needed to have a repentive heart and be broken over their sinful condition as many of the Roman soldiers and others were. Well, let's give another example here in verse 10. And not only this, but also Rebekah. Remember, Isaac had Rebekah as wife. She also conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac. For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. I just want to stop there just for a second. He's saying, now, we're not going to just look at two children from two separate wives. Abraham had Sarah, and of course, that was his legitimate wife. And Isaac, supernaturally, was conceived as she was 90 and gave birth. Although those things are true, that's not really the point. It's not because Ishmael was from Hagar, this Egyptian woman, this pagan evil woman. We, we don't see that at all. As a matter of fact... Uh, when Hagar was weeping, God was there with her and comforting her. And, and he and gave her the word as Abraham, Ishmael shall also be a great people, and I'm with him. And God was with him. So it's not this, one's good and one's evil. One's blessed and the other's cursed. That, that's not the point. And now he really reiterates the point by saying, in verse 12, it shall be said to her, the older shall serve the younger, but when was this said? Before they were born. <laughs> so it had nothing to do with what they said or what they did or good or bad attitudes or good or bad actions. It has nothing to do with any of that. But yet, now we have not only one man, Isaac, with one wife, Rebecca, but we have two sons that are born at the same exact time. They're twins. Jacob and Esau. Remember, Esau came out first. Now, I know people that have been born twins or sometimes identical twins, sometimes fraternal twins. And sometimes they're born minutes apart, 5, 10, 15 minutes apart. Uh, I remember some friends growing up and, and they were identical twins, but the one guy just loved the fact that he was the older brother. You know, he was born like three minutes ahead, you know, and uh, here's my little brother, you know. Oh, he hated it. You know, I hate being the little brother. You know, only three minutes apart. But with Esau and Jacob, there wasn't even a second apart. Remember, Jacob had a hold of Esau's hill. It's like, here comes baby number one and baby number two. Stop that. Let go of his hill. You know, Jacob in essence saying, I don't want to be second. I'm trying to pull that guy back in here and climb over his neck and put him back in. I want to be first. But we see that God chose Jacob over Esau 
Not because Jacob was good and Esau was evil. What do we see in these guys? They were both horrible guys. <laughs> I mean, neither one of these guys should be anybody's heroes, really. They were both very um, selfish, self-seeking, deviant guys who had no respect for their parents, no respect for God, no respect for his covenant. They, they both were just very self-seeking individuals. And why did God choose Jacob over Esau? He tells us in verse 11 that the purpose of God according to election might stand. Not of works, but of him who calls. It here is telling us that God made a choice. Period. And his choice was Jacob. Well, why did God make that choice? Well, let's first identify the fact that God is infinite. That his ways are higher than our ways, are as high as the heavens are above the earth. That his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, as high as the heavens are above the earth. That, that even if God explained to us why he made the choices, our little brains would fry and melt down and they'd have to chuck us in the garbage with our last year's computer. That we don't have the circuitry to handle the infinite thought processes of God. So we just sort of need to stop and just say, God is God and I'm not him. But here again, people often want to fault God for making choices. Well, I don't think God should make a choice. Okay, let's get this clear. God is eternal, infinite, all-powerful, all-knowing, and you, peon, piece of dirt, created being. God can be God, and it's not wrong for God to be God. Well, I don't think it's right for him to use all all his power. I don't think it's right for God to know as much as he knows. It's it's ridiculous. God being God, (laughs) there's nothing evil in that. But but he chose one. He didn't choose the other. How many of you guys got to choose who you're going to marry? And how many, if if somebody said, you're going to marry that person, I don't care what you want. You're forced to, and much of the world is today, but... Here in this congregation, it's not the case. You thought about it, and maybe somebody said, hey, are you going to marry that person? Uh, I don't know. Thinking about it. And you sort of go back and forth, and you, you, you process. And then let me tell you what. When you finally make the choice, it's not one thing, is it? I mean, when you say, I'm going to propose to that girl, or the girl says yes or no, it's not like, no, Why? It's not really one thing. I mean, it's like, why? I, you know, it's just no. Just, just take it as a no. But explain it to me. It, you know, it's sort of a lot of things, isn't it? And it's complicated. Some of them we could explain. We could say, it's this, this, and this. Most of them, though, it's sort of like, well, I'm just sort of uncomfortable with that. Why? I can't really explain it. Sort of like this. Why did you say yes? Well, I could give you five reasons to say no, but now I'm saying yes anyway. But, you know, here's, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing for us to process. And the same with God. I mean, I, I don't think that God says, I chose Jacob, boom, for this, and Esau, I didn't choose for that. I, I think there's a whole midrand of reasons that God has that we'll never be able to compute. We see in part, we know in part, one day we'll be face to face with him, and we'll see all things clearly. But until then... We know that God is a God of love. We know that God cares about us and that everything he does is the best, not just for us, but for all of mankind. And that God chose Jacob, not just to bless Jacob, but to bless all the human race. That there is an intricate point in time where Abraham was the guy. Why? I have no idea. God when he does try to explain why he chooses Israel, it really doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, Here's why I chose you, because I set my love on you. Okay, how does that work? Couldn't you set your love on the guy next door to him and chose him? Evidently not. But this is, again, where we come to understand this amazing doctrine of election that he chose Abraham, or he chose Jacob, the younger over the older. And look at verse 13. 
As it's written, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I have hated. Now, I want you to make a note here in verse 13. This is in Malachi chapter 1, the last book of our Old Testament, verses 2 and 3. And it was written 1,500 years after Jacob and Esau ever lived. And if you read verse 4, it's clearly not talking about Esau the person. It's talking about Esau the nation. The nation of Esau was called Edom. Edom, although Esau lovingly forgave his brother and and they had a, a type of relationship, unfortunately, Esau's lineage could never do what Esau did. And they constantly hated Israel. There's a little book called Obadiah. It's a little paragraph. And and it basically talks about where Edom, when God was punishing Israel through the Assyrians and through the Babylonians, that that the Edomites went out to the border and held the Israelis there until their enemy caught up with them to butcher them. And Edom rejoiced in that. And, and God basically says, because you were not willing to be a brother. And when, when the Israelis left Egypt and they were coming through by the area of Edom, God said, don't take a, anything from there. That is your brother's Esau's lineage. As I've chosen him, and that's his part, that's his partial, and, and you're to only bless him. And made it very clear that, that they were in no way, shape, or form to, to injure Edom. But unfortunately, Edom did not have that same respect towards the, that covenant of God. That, and so the Edomites were eventually destroyed because of their hatred towards their brother Israel. I do want to point out here too in verse 13, a very important thing. That often when we have a word in English, it's not completely representing the original language. And so if you look at this Greek word here, it is also not just translated hated, it's also translated less loved or unloved. And of course, if you cross-reverend this passage out of Malachi and looked at that word in Hebrew, you would see it mostly used as less loved or unloved. For example, there is a point where God not by creation but out of compromise and out of concession allowed them to have more than one wife but he said the wife that is less loved her children get the inheritance it's this word hated we see the same thing where Jacob had two wives Rachel and Leah and it says that God saw that Leah was and it's this world this word here less loved and gave her children And so here it's not necessarily in the understanding as we understand English that God hated Esau. But at the same time, he did not have the same calling, if you would, on Esau. He didn't have the same covenant with Esau. Now, again, does that mean that God had no plan for Esau? No, he had a wonderful plan for Esau. He gave him a place. He he was with him. He blessed him. But at the same time, ultimately, the country of Edom became this this very embittered people towards Israel and they did what they could to hurt Israel and God said because of your hatred towards Israel I'm going to end you Uh, the way you judged I'm going to judge you the way you wanted to destroy Israel therefore I'm going to destroy you and so here we see that God if you would and you can stop here and you can say well before they were yet born (laughs) God saw ultimately thousands of years in advance the nation of Israel and he saw thousands of years in advance the nation of Edom and therefore he chose Jacob because of that. I don't know if it is insinuating that. Maybe it is. But either way, it's it's making a clear distinction that God very forcefully chose Jacob. God very distinctively did not choose in the way he chose Jacob. Jacob, under the covenant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he did not choose Esau in that same covenant, even though they were both equally 
According to the flesh, Jews. According to the flesh, Israelites, if you would. Yet one would choose the covenant of God, Jacob, ultimately, and the other didn't. And again, if you try to say, well, Jacob was a wonderful guy and Esau was a horrible guy, <laughs> you won't find that. A, a lady came up one time to Spurgeon and she showed him this verse 13. And she read it as it's written, Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated. And she says, I have a real problem with that verse. And Spurgeon said, I have the same exact problem. How did God ever love Jacob? <laughs> the, the point, the miracle of this story is not that God hated Esau, it's that God didn't hate them both. They were both horrible, horrible guys. But yet, in spite of Jacob and all his character flaws, God still chose him. Now, that sort of leads to another question, verse 14. Well, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For it say, he says to Moses, I will have compassion, I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So again, the, the question comes back is, is, is that fair of God choosing one and not choosing another? Sure it is. What, what's fair is that God chose nobody. Well, is it right that God would have mercy on somebody? It would be righteous for God to have mercy on nobody. That would be the right thing. Mercy is what you do deserve a punishment or, or some kind of consequence, but you're not going to get it. So if you would, all of mankind is evil and wicked. And all of us should be equally judged to go to hell for eternity. That's righteousness. That's justice. But yet God has mercy on some. Is that wrong for God to have mercy on some? If you had a big giant barrel of apples, you just came from Julian, and you got carried away and here you got 500 apples and you're going, what am I going to do with these things now? It's fun picking them, but I don't know what I'm going to do with them now. And, and you said, hey, Brian, here, t- take, take these apples. And I'm like, I don't need a barrel of apples. I'll, I'll, and I get a bag and I take four or five of them out and, and you say, they're just all going to rot if you don't take them. Well, better rot at your house than my house. I'm not going to eat that many apples. And then you say, that's evil of you, choosing five, six apples. If you're not going to choose them all, just put them back. You see, there's nothing wrong in the fact that I chose some. In the same way, if God has mercy on some, doesn't mean he's evil. It's simply wonderful that he had mercy on anyone. So is, is there unrighteousness with God again that he chooses? There's a story on this subject in Matthew 20 that Jesus sort of explains this point. He tells a parable about some guys who came out early in the morning to work all day. And they said, okay, we'll give you a day's wage. And they went to work. And a few hours later, some more guys came. And he said, I'll pay you what I think is right. And a few hours later, some more. Until... The day is almost over. There's just another hour or so to work and he still hires some guys and then he begins to pay them. And as it involves, the people that worked one hour got paid a whole day's wage. The same as the guys who had worked all day long through the heat of the day, many, many hours. And, And the guys who worked all day began to get bitter at the guy who paid these guys who worked one hour the same wage. And he said to the guys that were angry, he said, hey, when you started work today, did we agree on this salary? And they said, yeah. Did I pay you that? Yeah. Why would you be bitter at me for giving these guys whatever I want to give them for any amount of work I want to give them? I did what was fair to you. Rejoice. Rejoice that I blessed these other guys with what I blessed them with. In the same way here, we, we, we need to just stop and just say, Lord, thank you that you've chosen anyone. Thank you, Lord, that you had mercy on anyone. There's no unrighteousness with God because he was good, that he blessed. That leads in verse 16 then. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. We're going to discover at the end of this chapter that salvation does not come by our works. It's a gift of God. It's not by all your religious activity. It's not by all of your humanitarian efforts. It's not by going green and, you know, giving out less emissions into the 
atmosphere. You're not going to earn heaven. Our Our righteousness is filthy rags before God. Our heart is desperately, deceitfully wicked. Above all things, who can know it? We, in a 10,000 years of doing good works, can never earn our way to heaven. The only way anyone's going to be saved is as a gift of God through the work of Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection. Everyone in heaven, 100% everybody in heaven, is going to be there because they humbly received the gift of God by confessing they were sinners and they needed God's forgiveness, which we received through Jesus Christ. All of us in heaven are going to be there because God had mercy upon us. And as we discover through the scriptures that for a man to become a born-again believer, it's God and his mercy initiating that. Jesus said, no one comes unto me unless the Father first draws them. It's interesting, right after that, he says, all who come unto me... I will in no wise cast out. (laughs) Well, what is it? Is it God coming to me? Yeah, and then it's also you coming to God. It's not one or the other, it's both. Our will and cooperation with God's will. But the, the key here is, is that all of us have to have first been touched by the mercies of God before we can even see our sinful condition. Here's sort of the opposite side of that coin, if you would. In verse 17, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up. Notice it doesn't say he created him, but he raised him up as a king when he was in power. That I may show my power in you, that I may, my name may be declared in all the earth. Now, if you know this story in Exodus, Moses and Aaron came down and said, let my people go. And if you look in chapter 7 and 8, And nine, it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. The Hebrew word there is very clear. He stubbornly opposed God. He stood adamantly against the will of God. Then after that, at the end of chapter nine, in chapter 10, in chapter 11, in chapter 14, it then says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's a different Hebrew word. It's the the word to affirm. He affirmed that position of self-will. And so here he is saying, we see that God saw that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, stubborn against him. And he confirmed that hardness and caused more miracles. And not only would the Hebrews see it, the Egyptians see it, but all the world to this day knows about the power of God in delivering the children of Israel out of Egypt. What's the conclusion of that in in, in verse 18 there? Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. And so we we have to stop here and and, and realize that God is saying, I'm going to be God. It's my bat, it's my ball, it's my field. (laughs) If I say there's three strikes or five strikes, if I say there's one inning or ten innings, If I say a home run is this far or that far, I'm God. God can do what God wants to do. Now, to be honest with you, when I read these verses, I just melt. I'm just, I just want to fall on my face and just say, you're God. Whatever you say, whenever you say, however you say, you're God. But at the same time, when I read this, I, I'm Pharaoh. <laughs> I am the most hard-hearted, stubborn, selfish guy that you'll ever meet. Just ask my wife and kids. They'll tell you about it. But, but yet, as hard-hearted and stubborn and self-willed as I am, I just want God's will. I want his will more than anything. I want to submit to him and love him and serve him and bless him. And I I just want to walk as Jesus walked. And none of that is coming from me. God has done a miracle and changed my life. And so when I look at this, I'm, I'm looking at it going, I know I could have a hard heart. I mean, it wouldn't take much. 
But I don't. I have been touched by the mercy of God. And God can have mercy on whom he wills. And God can harden whom he wills. And in a very pragmatic way, I just sit here going, Thank you, God. (laughs) Thank you that you had mercy on me, Lord. I'm, I'm just amazed that I, this guy ten times harder heart than Pharaoh probably ever had, You've touched me, and I'm yielded. I I want your will. And I'm just overwhelmed with the God of all creation, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the eternal, all-powerful God who's blessed forever has chosen me. And, And here's what I realize. Before I was yet born, having done no good or no evil, but according to the purpose of election might stand, God chose me before the foundations of the world. And so I'm, I'm just sort of amazed at this. If you're a believer here today, you should have the same goosebumps I'm having right now of just going, Lord, thank you. It's such an amazing thing that you have this eternal elected plan before time began and my face, my, my name was mentioned there. On the other hand, there's the hard-hearted people that don't like this. They're like, who does God think he is? How many of you guys think God should be able to do this? Let's raise our hand. Okay, let's vote. God, we voted. You need to change your ways. I mean, is that going to really fly, guys? I mean, God's just going to say, okay, here's a little nitrogen. Boop, it's gone. Everything becomes dust. Oh, you want to vote? Okay, let's see a little oxygen out of here. We're all dust. Oh, really? Before you take that vote, let me bump the sun just a little closer to you guys. Boom, boom. We fry. Oh, maybe I'll just move that sun just a, oh, just a little ways away. We all freeze to death. I'll just move the moon a little closer. Tidal waves covering the whole earth. I'll just move the moon a little bit farther away. All the earth's waters are stagnant and polluted in a matter of a few days. Do we understand who we're dealing with here? We're dealing with God who has intricately created all things, including you and me. And he is a God of love. He's a God of compassion. God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son to save us horrible, wicked sinners. There is no fault in God. There is no evil in God. There is no self-seeking, self-serving, self-pleasing in God. All that God does is out of a love for us. Well, I don't like the fact that he has mercy on some and, and some he hardens. You know what? Come to Christ right now. Just say, Jesus, your Lord, I want you to forgive my sins and be the Lord of my life. You know what you'll find? He has mercy on you right now. But I don't want to receive that. That's because you're a Pharaoh. You're hardened. You're a vessel of dishonor. Well, I don't want to be a vessel of dishonor. Then receive Christ. Well, I don't want to receive Christ. It's because you're not called. I don't think that's right. I think you should call me. Then come to Christ and you'll find out you were. You you, you see, the fault is not in God. The Holy Spirit's in the world convicting every man right now of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. It tells us plainly in 1 Timothy 2.4 that God wishes that all men would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God is for every man. Many are called, but few are chosen. In 2 Peter 3.9, it says, God is not slack concerning some who count slackness. <laughs> to, the day, to the Lord, a day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. But why, why is the Lord delaying His coming? Because he does not wish that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. There's no fault in God. All who want to come may come. But, but you said that no one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws them. Yes. And Jesus says, all who come into me, none of them will I cast out. Well, what if I come to Christ and I'm not the called? You won't get cast out. And you'll find out you're the called, and that's the reason you came. 
Well, we go on here in Romans. And we see that the hard-hearted cynic, look at his question in verse 19. Well, you'll say to me then, then why does he still find fault? For he who resists his will. So what you've described in my mind is that God's a puppeteer. And we're all a bunch of puppets. And he created a Pharaoh puppet over here. And Mr. Pharaoh puppet, you be the villain. You be the evil guy. And God's pulling his strings and he's being this hard-hearted evil puppet over here. And, and then you got this righteous guy over here, Moses and Aaron, and, and you got their little puppets and, and you're doing their strings. And, and so how can, how can Pharaoh be judged when God puppeted him to be the evil villain? And how can Moses be blessed and honored when he was just puppeted to be blessed and be honored? Who can resist his will? We're just all a bunch of puppets and whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And, and God is, is so great and so powerful. We're just all, you know, a part of the TV show that God's watching. There's nothing farther from the truth. God has made all of us complete self-willed individuals. And as you read through the Bible, you, you never see that God says it doesn't matter if you pray doesn't matter what you choose. doesn't matter what you do. I already know what's going to happen anyway. We never get that sense. Over and over again, God prompts us saying, stop, don't make that choice, make this choice. Stop, if you make that choice, that's going to happen. If you make that choice, that's going to happen. All through the scripture, we have man, prophets, judges, kings, the Holy Spirit, angels, begging men, to make a wise and right choice that their next step would be blessed and not cursed. And so here it goes on in verse 20. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have the power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel of honor and another of dishonor? So, so imagine a guy who's got a lump of clay and he's making this plate. And all of a sudden, this little mouth appears on the plate and says, Hey, stupid, I want to be a bull. What are you going to do? You're going to say, I don't like you. No, to go over there and be a ball over there in the corner and harden and decay. In essence, that's what he's saying here. Who, who are we to, to, to say anything to God? Who are we to try to educate God who are we to try to give wisdom to God his ways are past our ways his thoughts are past our thoughts as high as the heavens are above the earth you know when I look at that there indeed oh man who are you (laughs) it reminds me of that passage in Romans 2 where it says let God be found true and every man a liar let God be found true Now, Paul begins to speculate here, and I I do want you to understand in verse 22, this is a speculation. He's not saying this is how God operates. But in verse 22, what if God, wanting to show his wrath to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he called, not only Jews only, but also for the Gentiles. So what if God takes not just one Pharaoh, but all the Pharaohs of the world who have resisted his will, who have hardened their hearts against him, and he says, you know what, I'm going to affirm your hardness. At some point, there's a point of no return. We don't know when that is, but God does. And he just says, you know what, I'm going to use that hardness of heart to the glory of God. In the same way, those who have yielded their will to the God, I'm going to use your will to the glory of God. Now, what if God did it? It doesn't say he's doing that. But even if that played out that way, is God at fault? Is God evil? The the, the question is, if God is all-powerful and he uses all his power, is that evil? If God knows all things and he uses every piece of information he knows... Is it wrong for God to use all the information he knows? If God can see the future, is it wrong for him to use that to his advantage? Of course it isn't. That would be like if you had a million dollars in the bank and you have no food in the house 
and you say, not everybody in the world has a million dollars, so therefore I'm not going to withdraw any money, even though we're starving. And I show up to your house, and one of your kids just died of starvation. I'm like, don't you have any money to buy? I have a million dollars, but it's just not right that I'd use any of that money, since not everybody in the world has a million dollars. What would I say to you? (laughs) That's stupid thinking. And in essence, this is what they're saying. God, since not everybody's all-powerful and everybody knows everything and everybody can see the future, it's not right that you have that advantage. It's, it's ridiculous. God is God and you are not. <laughs> and if God decides to be God, there's no evil in that. And if God knows that man's heart is never going to bend towards him and he uses that hardness in a way that would bring glory to him, there's no evil in that. And then he makes it clear in verse 24 that this calling of God is not just on the Jews only, but also on the Gentiles. Now, in in verse 25 and 26, he quotes Hosea chapter 2, verse 23, and then Hosea chapter 1, verse 10. Boy, go home and read Hosea. Such a powerful, beautiful book. But he says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and her beloved who was not my beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. There they shall be called sons of the living God. Here's a clear prophetic word that one day the Gentiles would be brought into the household of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then in verse 27 and 28, we're now quoting Isaiah chapter 10, verse 22 and 23. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. Prophetically, God said thousands of years in advance that within the history of Israel, it's always a remnant of the Jews that are saved. It's always been in every generation. Only a remnant of them will have the same faith that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had. That although there's many children according to the flesh, Israel, there's not many spiritual Israel. Not many sons of faith as Abraham. It's always a remnant, always will be a remnant. And also in verse 29, quoting Isaiah 1 verse 9, As Isaiah said before, unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. Had God not elected people of Israel, there would be no Israelis on the earth today. Like Sodom and Gomorrah were a wicked nation wiped out. You won't see any Sodom or Gomorrah passports today. They're annihilated. They're gone. He's saying Israel is exactly like Sodom and Gomorrah. And had I not elected some, there would be none. Remember Elijah, when he was there calling fire to heaven against the Bell worshipers and the whole nation to become Bell worshipers. After that, he says to God, I'm left. I'm the only one. There is not one other Jew alive that has not bowed his knee to Bell. That was his calculation. And God corrected him. He said, no, there's actually 7,000 prophets that haven't bowed their knee to bell, but even that is a remnant, remnant amount of people. And of course, uh, we know the history of, of Israel. But then in verse 30, he says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing, here's the key, the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. For they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it's written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone, a rock of offense. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Quoting verse 33, Isaiah 8 verse 14 and Isaiah 28 verse 16. He says, what do we, what do we come here? Now, I want to make it clear, guys. You only have a few pieces of the puzzle out on the table here. Don't draw conclusions yet. We're not done with conclusions about Israel. 
A lot of people read chapter 9 and say, God's thrown Israel away. There's what's called the replacement theology that says the New Testament church is now Israel. So we just need to go back and reread the Old Testament and every time God gave a promise to, to the Israelis, just scratch it out and say the church. God has nothing to do with Israel anymore as a nation. He has no care, no concern. They're old news. All that matters now are Christians. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. That's, that's all there is. God has no present or future plan for Israel. And boy, you better not draw that conclusion because we're not in chapter 10 and we definitely haven't finished chapter 11. There's a lot more God has to say about Israel. But at this point, Paul wants to wrap it up and say what? That the Jews presently are stumbled by the stumbling stone as Isaiah prophesied. They're wanting to only have their own righteousness derived from the law and they're unwilling to humble themselves and receive the righteousness that comes through the Messiah, Jesus. And they're stumbled at that stumbling stone. A similar passage out of Psalm 118, Jesus taught on in Matthew 21. And he said, it's so right of you guys, talking to the Pharisees, that the stone that the builder rejected is the chief cornerstone the rock of your salvation, and you're unwilling to receive him. And then Jesus ended by saying, you need to fall upon that rock and be broken unless that rock one day falls upon you and grinds you to powder. The stone of stumbling is Jesus. Receiving horrible, horrible people. The woman at the well, a Samaritan. The woman caught in the act of adultery. Receiving in the Rahabs and the Rus, Receiving in the sinners, Gentiles and Jews. Three wise men, three Arabs from the east came and saw the star and they were the first there to worship Jesus and to give of their gifts. From the beginning, we see throughout prophecy, it's always been God calling the Jews and the Gentiles, but yet... God has a tremendous message to still teach us to the Jews. And that's what we're going to look in chapter 10 and chapter 11. Let's bow our heads right now. Lord, we know today that no doubt, by the pre-knowledge of God, by the foreknowledge of God, that you've brought some here today to hear this rather heady message in some ways. Difficult, complicated, but yet we got it. Because your spirit helped us to hear what you're saying, that there are some here with a stubborn, rebellious heart, but not today. You've brought them here by the power of your spirit to hear of your great love for them, that you want to pour your mercy upon them, that if they will come to you today, you'll in no wise cast them out. And if that's you here today, you need to leave here being made right with God. The Bible says that if you'll confess your sin, he'll forgive you of your sin through Jesus Christ, taking all your sin upon him, paying for it on the cross, raising again, conquering sin and death. You can receive as a gift right now. The Bible says he'll write your name in the book of life. The Bible tells us that all of heaven will rejoice at one sinner that repents. And if that's you today, I would fall on that rock and be broken. I just fall on your face and say, Jesus, you are Lord, and I submit myself to your will. Right now, Jesus, I know that you love me. I I sense that you are the, the way of salvation. You are the eternal God over all, and I submit myself to your will. Forgive my sin. Cleanse me from my horrible, evil nature. Put your spirit within me and Give me a new life. Cause me to be born again by your spirit. I will seek you. I will pray to you. I will follow you. I come unto you and I know you will in no wise cast me out. But as a good shepherd, you'll receive me, your little lamb, unto yourself. Take me in your arms. I give my life to you. From this day forward, I surrender and will continue every day to surrender my life, my will into your hands. And we thank you that you'll continue to have mercy on whom you will and have compassion on whom you will. And we thank you there's many struggling here today, many hurting in heart today. 
because of man, what's done to them, the world's done to them, Satan's done to them, foolish choices have done to them, they're hurting, Lord, but you, God, can bind up the brokenhearted right now. Lord, please, I ask today that you'd have compassion on all of us here today. Heal us, strengthen us, revive us through your word in Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, amen, amen. If you prayed that prayer today, come forward. I'd love to talk to you, give you a Bible and encourage you. If you need prayer, come forward. Pastors, leaders, there's wives will be here. May the Lord richly bless you and keep you and strengthen you. Come back tonight, Joshua, some awesome stuff. And uh, go Chargers. In Jesus' name. All right.